Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. Um, it is uh, it's Courtney and I's anniversary today. So, um, yeah, man. Amen. A testimony of grace, right, is absolutely what that is. So, um, so happy anniversary to, um, to my wife, Courtney. Seven years. Wow. Here we go. We're well on our way now. So we got it all figured out. If anybody has any questions, just let us know. Um, so uh, that, that's a joke. We're in Genesis chapter 37. Um, great, to, great to be back. Uh, as many of you guys know, I was, uh, I was away in Chicago um, at the tail end of this past week um, with a group of guys reading through 1 and 2 Samuel. Man, Woo, what a what a workshop! It was crazy. It was really good, but it um it uh it, it made for quite a, a day yesterday. Pretty pretty. Um, always encouraging to uh, to be back here and to um, be with you guys and to be in Genesis thirty seven, which is where we find ourselves this morning. There is um, a, a bit of a, a kind of a thesis that I want to give you in the beginning that we are going to work around, and then we're going to talk a little bit about where we have been because, as we stated last week, we've gone through this major transition point in the book of Genesis, and so um, here's kind of the idea that we're going to work towards understanding as we uh, move through Genesis 37 today. We're going to put this up on the screen so that you guys uh, can follow along. Uh, This would be so incredibly helpful for you to uh, make a note of as it will serve um, to guide our conversation through uh, Genesis 37 today. Um, This is a message that we are in need of hearing Okay, this is a message that we are in need of processing and considering practical implication of. Because, as we stated in the beginning, uh, we live in a world that is broken. Uh, We live in a world that um, is oftentimes overwhelming. Uh, for, for many of us, whether we are finding ourselves the direct object of some type of evil or if we are just observing evil taking place in the world. All of the various news and media outlets make it so easy for us to, 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 to understand exactly how broken the world is. The thesis that we're kind of working around this morning is, is this, directly from Genesis 37, and that is that God preserves Joseph's life. The preservation of Joseph's life. That's what we're going to be, that's what we're working towards is this story um, is, is introduced, it builds, it climaxes, and then we have some type of resolution, but it's not one um, that, we, that we really walk away from today going, man, I feel really good about where we are right now. We have to hang around a little while in this story as it develops. God preserves Joseph's life in spite of his brother's evil actions, positioning him to fulfill his purpose in God's plan to rescue a people. 
That was a lot. And there's a sense in which we could, we could put the same statement on the screen over the course of the next few weeks, and we're going to be able to continuously revisit it. And so if you made a note of it, it would be helpful perhaps to consider as we progress through this last final major section of this very large book that is um, Genesis. We've noticed uh, perhaps that the story has shifted a bit. There's a transition even as we come into Genesis 37 out of what we saw last week as the descendants of Esau are, uh, are, are mapped out. That's where we were last week, the genealogy of Esau. As we come into this week, we see a bit of a context shift. Parts of God's promise to Abraham seem to be more clear at this point than others, right? This is what we're working through, through the the book of Genesis as a whole. What do we know God is doing? Well, if we go all the way back to the beginning, what is God doing? Well, he's, he's unfolding this redemptive plan to save the world, right? To save a, a people, Through who? Well, through Jesus. This is the insight that we have on this side of the cross as we reflect back on what we see in Genesis chapter 3. The promise of the coming seed who will rescue and redeem and restore and make ultimately all things new as we live with God, dwelling with God, enjoying God, and worshiping God forever. It's this incredible story that we're introduced to. And as the the story progresses, we see that this promise um, is is just beginning to to unfold to a greater and greater degree, right? As we meet Abraham, we are provided a bit more insight, right? That God is going to raise up a nation. That he's going to bless Abraham and he's going to bless Abraham's descendants. And he's going to bless his descendants in order that his descendants might be a blessing to the nations. This is what God is doing. And we're, we're seeing this, this promise become a bit more clear as we transition into Genesis 37. Jacob or, or Israel, right, as we've seen him renamed, the heir of God's promise is back in the land. His family is is growing. We certainly see it having grown from Abraham until now, but we are still a very long way away from a nation of God's people being a thing. And now as we transition into Genesis 37, we find ourselves waiting. We've heard the promise We're seeing elements of the promise like being realized, but there's a lot of the promise that we are still going, what's the deal? Like when is all of this going to happen? We're waiting. As a question of God's presence and purpose through difficulty floats to the surface as we come into this morning's passage. Evil remains. And and while evil remains, the question is, and this is what makes it so timely for our context and our culture, it's nothing new, it's always been. The question is this, where is God? The the world is broken, people are broken, there is evil. 
right, prospering all around us. Remember what we said last week as we worked through the descendants of Esau? We even found ourselves asking this question. Who in the world is going to fulfill this promise first? Like what is happening here? We're seeing the descendants of Esau rise into this level position of power that, that the descendants of Jacob have yet to know. Well, wait a second. Jacob is the one by whom the, the promise is to move forward. And yet it seems as though evil is prospering. Where is, where is God? This is a question that we have to wrestle with in Genesis 37. This is a question that we naturally wrestle with in the world. Whether you come into this room this morning and you would say, man, I'm a believer in Jesus. Like I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm following Jesus. Or you come in here and you say, I'm exploring the faith. Or I'm asking, I'm asking questions of the faith. Regardless of where you find yourself, the reality is that what we observe in us and around us is the same, right? Like, can we get on board with that? I think, I think that we can. I think we can all begin at this place. And so, so as we come into Genesis 37, this is, this is what we're, this is what we're working towards, right? We see the preservation of Joseph's life. We see evil seeming to, to just kind of like be manifest and to, and to rule and to, and to be the rule more than the exception. Where is God and what is, and what is he doing? Great picture. In Genesis 37. So let's, let's go there. Let's go to Genesis 37. Beginning in verse 1. You guys will be able to follow along on the screen if you would like. Verse 1 says this. That Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings. In the land of Canaan. These, verse 2, are the generations of Jacob. And so if you remember where we, we finished last week, where were we? Well, we were in the descendants of Esau. We, we talked about how, how uh, Moses does this really incredible thing as he, as he composes um, these first five books. We've observed it already in the book of Genesis. He oftentimes takes a moment to trace out the line of the, of the son by which the promise is not to progress in order to then rewind. <laughs> right? And to, and to trace out God's promise progressing through the, the, the promised heir, right? As we come into 37, we're turning the page. We've seen kind of what's going on with, with Esau, evil, wearing crowns, right? It's advancing in, in power and position. But now these are the generations of Jacob. Continuing on in verse 2, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy uh, with the sons of, of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them, that being his brothers, to their father. Verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a, a robe of, of many colors, verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. They could not speak peacefully to him. I read an article this past week uh, on a portion of, 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 of what we're reading here the, this morning, a, a piece that I would like to share with you um, in the article the author writes. The Bible is brutally honest about the character flaws 
of the great heroes of the faith. Never ignoring the sins of Abraham, Moses, David, and the other important figures in redemptive history. In the case of Joseph, however, we have to press hard to find anything blameworthy in him. We do know that he struggled with sin, even if it is not mentioned directly. Many commentators, for example, have concluded that he was something of a spoiled child, a tattletale on his brothers, and a proud individual who gloated, at least indirectly, about the high position that his dreams foretold, which we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. Now, my position in light of this statement, this portion of an article on this particular passage, is that so many commentators assert that Jacob wrestled with pride and arrogance because Joseph, I'm sorry, I'm going to do this like 500 times. These J's are going to like really trip me up. Many commentators assert that Joseph wrestled with pride and arrogance because Joseph was a proud and arrogant child. If not in all seasons, certainly in some, which is enough to solidify spiritual separation and need. Now, this is my position primarily because it is most consistent with the biblical narrative. Right, if, we, if we approach this passage and we see Joseph elevated to this position in which we say, man, we are really struggling even to, to see or acknowledge or, or find fault in him, what we are doing is seeing a great departure from the redemptive narrative. And not only do we want to, to be clear that, that these characters are fallen, but we want to be sure that we understand The gravity of their sin and how observable it is even early on, even in this very passage. Sin has ravaged humanity. Joseph is marked by sin. How do we see that? Well, again, look back at verse 2. In verse 2, we find a misrepresentation of his brothers. As Joseph brings a report to his father that should be understood based on the language that Moses uses to be partially but not perfectly true. All right, well, what are we saying? We're saying that as we look at verse 2, Joseph, 17 years old, pasturing the flock, boy, we get a, a little bit of insight into who he is. We see there at the end that he brings a bad report of his brothers to their father. Now, in Moses' writing, he is emphasizing this point. That there is a a level, there is a degree of exaggeration that's being extended to his father as Joseph shares this report with him. We have every reason to believe that, that Joseph presented to his father a story laced with purposeful exaggeration and inaccuracy based on the way that Moses writes. He wants us to know this. He wants his audience to see this very early on in verse 2. For what reason, we don't know. We can only speculate. But that would be, of course, speculation. What we know is enough. Sin is ravaging humanity. Joseph is feeling its effects. But it's not only Joseph. Israel is marked by sin. 
Right? There's this noticeable favoritism towards Joseph. His son with his now deceased wife, Rachel, whose passing is recorded for us in earlier chapters. She was Israel's first love. In many ways, an unhealthy object of Israel's affection. We remember that from, from earlier on in the story. All of this assists in shaping the way that we understand Israel's favoritism towards Joseph here in Genesis 37. Further displayed through his gifting to Joseph this beautiful coat, which so oftentimes becomes the entire focus of this story. A coat that is recognized not only by its bright, beautiful colors, but its, its length. A point that's, that's, that's uh, expounded upon at length by many commentators of this passage. It's length in both the sleeves as well as its side and back. Think um, like Vera Bradley meets the Matrix. It's kind of like what's going on here, right? This beautiful multicolored coat that says a lot about the relationship that Israel enjoys with his son, Joseph. Often understood as an indication that Joseph had been set aside by his father to receive a double portion of the inheritance. These are details intended to highlight for us Israel's feelings towards Joseph. Feelings that served as a catalyst for chaos and dysfunction within the family. At our mission community group last week, Tim Horsley made the comment about favoritism. And how it so oftentimes leads to this type of dysfunction. We're observing that again, aren't we? Let's not forget that Israel is really familiar with how all of this works. Again, let's not read this passage in isolation, but let's consider the larger story. His father Isaac favored his older brother Esau over him. Rebekah favored Jacob or Israel over Esau. Jacob favored Rachel and her children, Joseph included, over Leah and her children. Favoritism is a part of the rhythm of what we are seeing take place within this, with this family. And in each and every instance, the effects of this type of relationship are observable. Things do not go well. In verse 4, Moses reminds God's people that Israel's special love for Joseph ignites a hatred in the hearts of his brothers toward him. I want, you to, I want you to feel that. I want you to imagine that. I want you to, to, even if you have to close your eyes, I want you to get the picture of what's going on within this family. Perhaps on the surface, it seems like everything is going really well, but there is this, this bubbling in the underbelly of this family that is leading us toward the events that we are going to observe as the story progresses. Hatred in the hearts of his brothers Toward Joseph to the point that they could not even speak peacefully, verse 4, toward him. We find that as a result of all of this, Joseph is demonized by his brothers. He can't even open his mouth without finding himself the subject of their scorn or steely-eyed glares. Now let's be clear. 
Okay, the, the sin of Joseph and Israel in no way excuse the sin that we see from Joseph's other brothers in verses 4 through 28. But they do serve to frame them for us. They help us to to understand what is exactly taking place and going on with this family. They serve to shape our understanding of what we see and of what we read. Practically, we find encouragement to consider the ways that our own sin might be breeding sinful feelings or behavior in others. Does this in any way excuse the sin of others? Of another? No. But it does give cause for pause and healthy reflection for each of us. Let me give you an example of what this looks like and how this works. We have a three-year-old little boy named Judah. Many of you know him. Now, if Judah were to walk out our front door, pick up a rock, and proceed to throw it through our living room window, rest assured that we would have a very real conversation about his sin. Okay? But... As Judah's father, the father of a three-year-old, I would have to do some degree of like of, of, of internal like reflection and consider how my own sinful actions might have contributed to his. Or am, I, am I caring for and protecting him? Maybe I need to lock the door behind me, at least the glass one, right? So that he can't walk outside and pick up a rock in the front yard while I'm hanging out and proceed to... To throw it through a window. Right? Like maybe there's some things that I need to consider about, about the way that I am the way that I am leading. This is where the story starts. And, and these are the noticeably flawed characters that we begin with. It is out of their stories that we find the sin of Joseph's brothers. Three times in four verses, the curtain is pulled back on their feelings, but not without some motivation. Look with me at verse 5. The scene is set. Are we feeling good about this? Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and, and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Can you imagine? Get the picture of just the eagerness by which Joseph tells this story. And like just the scowls that must be plastered all over his brother's faces as they listen to this. I imagine like arms crossed. Maybe they don't even look up, right? Like they're just, they're working and Joseph, like 17 years old, feeling spry, runs out, bouncing through the yard, right? Comes up upon his brothers. You guys are not going to believe this dream. Listen to this. If nothing else, Joseph's sin, observable here, is a failure to read the room as he ought to. <laughs> right? His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to, to rule over us? We see a, a fleshly natural reaction to pull away from this, Right? So, they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. 
So notice the progression that's taking place here. It's like their hearts are, are just being driven further and further and further into a pit of sin. First, they can't even like speak peacefully toward him. And then they, they hate him even more. And then they hate him even more. And I think each time we feel as though they've reached the, the bottom, right? Sin's depravity most clearly displayed. They just continue digging. It's amazing. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed a, another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it, to his father and to his brothers. His father's now getting in, right? Rebuking him, saying to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. That's a new element, isn't it? Right? Like we've seen hatred, 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 and now we see this, this jealousy. That's being emphasized. They were, they were jealous of him, but his father kept this saying in mind. If Israel started the fire that is devouring this family, then these dreams served as the gasoline. Dreams, interestingly enough, given by who? Dreams given by by God. Dreams given by God that foreshadow a future reality. Dreams that reveal a glorious future for Joseph. By way of these dreams, Joseph is, is promised glory. What else? Power. What else? Man, a, a glory and power that he would possess only after, in light of what we know to be true, great suffering. A glory and power that would come into the possession of Joseph, but only after great suffering. Dreams coupled with Joseph's immaturity that lead to the events that we observe in verses 12 through 36. Let's shift gears a bit. Look with me at verse 12. Now, as brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. We already know that that, that Joseph has this history of divulging the practices of his brother, maybe even at times, perhaps in light of the language, exaggerating a bit. Is Israel interested as to, as to what exactly his other sons are up to? Hey, we'll send a scout out to see, to see what exactly they are doing. Again, we don't know, but we do see Joseph's eagerness to go. He said to them, said to him, here I am, verse 14. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. Let me know how everything's going. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. Joseph is lost. And he can't, he can't find his way. He doesn't know where his brothers are. And he asked the man. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? Verse 16. I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went 
after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Verse 18, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to what? To kill him. Hatred breeding within the hearts of his brothers, jealousy and and contempt that now give way to this desire to kill their brother. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Hey, here comes the dreamer, (laughs) right? Cute with his dreams, right? I mean, I could play on this for a while. I feel like I might end the narrative a little bit. Come now, let us kill him. Not only are we going to kill him, but then let's throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll come. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Oh, this is your dream, right? Your dreams like glory and power. Really? What are you going to do with your dreams when we kill you and toss your lifeless limp body into a pit? Then what's going to happen to your dreams? Who gave the dreams? God gives the dreams. The brothers are conspiring against God's plan and and purpose, observable through the dreams that he gives to Joseph to cut this short. Evil conspiring against the plan and purposes of God. Notice how nonchalant this whole conversation feels. Verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Why did he say all this? Well, we provided some commentary from Moses that he might rescue him out of their hand to what? To restore him to his father. It seems improbable, perhaps even impossible, yet out of the confusion arises this first glimpse of a rescuer. Joseph's brother Reuben, who plots towards his being returned to his father. There's a hint of compassion. Let's not kill him. Let's not take his life. Let's not shed his blood all the while planning to come back and to, and to bring him up, to take him back to his father. Compassion that results in a stay of execution for Joseph. What is their plan? To kill him. Reuben interjects and we see, in light of the, the plans of the brothers, a shift. Their minds are changed. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers... They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, verse 24. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. The details are, are, are really incredible. Again, Moses, masterful in his, his painting the scene for us. Joseph is tossed into a pit that would act as his cell. Until his brothers could decide what to do with him or Reuben rescued him first. Now maybe here, there's an element of preparation that's taking place for Joseph through his brother's actions. Joseph, familiarize yourself with this scene. (laughs) 
familiarize yourself with, with this scene because imprisonment will, for a season, become a dominating circumstance for you. There must be, for Joseph, this extreme sense of hopelessness. There must be for Joseph this extreme sense of helplessness and confusion. Why? Why am I in this pit? Why have my brothers stripped me of my robe and thrown me into a waterless pit? One that that I'm, I'm not able to climb out of, right? Given that if he were, it would sort of defeat the purpose. How cavalier is this whole scene? In verse 25, after Joseph is thrown into the pit, his siblings sit down and eat lunch. Again, does that, does that assist you and I in understanding their hearts? I think it does, right? I mean, they just threw their brother into a pit. What are we going to do with him? We're not entirely sure, but it ends with him not returning with us. I doubt Joseph is sitting silent in the pit. <laughs> Let me out. Like, like, why? Why am I down here? What have I done? You know what you've done. <laughs> your dreams, right? Your, your father's favorite. And then they sit down and eat lunch. They sit down and, and eat. But while they eat, they, they look up. And they see a a caravan and Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and and myrrh on the way to carry it down to Egypt. Verse 26. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Here's an idea. Let's sell him. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and and, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. Maybe we're thinking better of things at this point. Let's profit, right? In like this real tangible way while getting rid of Joseph. His brothers listened to him, verse 28. Then Midianite traders passed by. And they drew, uh, they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. What a scene. What a story. You know, as I was reading through, I couldn't help but think about the writing of David in Psalm 40. The imagery here is incredible. The parallels within this passage are incredible. I feel like we could do, um, we could do a, a pre-service in which we just sat down and we discussed the parallelisms between what we see here in this scene and what we see in the Gospels. Right through the life and in times of, of Jesus. What we see as we look at Joseph and what we see as we look to Jesus. We could trace these parallels and we could contrast these scenes. The, 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 the psalmist David writes in Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. 
He brought me up out of the pit of destruction. Out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. That's what David writes in Psalm 40. We see here in Genesis 37 that that Joseph is lifted up out of a pit, brought out of a pit of destruction. And his feet are, are set indeed also upon a rock. Now, this is an interesting rock, isn't it? <laughs> right? Because this rock is like, it's like rolling on to Egypt, right? One would imagine that you would be hard-pressed even to consider what we observe taking place in verse 28 as a, as a reprieve, right? As, as a good thing. But as we consider the larger story, we know that it is. As unlikely as it seems in this moment, Joseph's being sold to the, to the Ishmaelites is yet another act of grace from the Lord. His providential plan and purpose being, being laid out for you and I to observe. There's, a, um, there's an artist that I'm a, I'm a really big fan of. I'm going to give you his name because I would encourage you to check out some of his stuff. His name is Scott Erickson, um, and he does some really beautiful and some really incredible pieces. If you're on social media, you can follow him on Instagram. Like He posts a lot there of, of kind of his work and what he's doing. But um, I, was, I was this past week uh, just like kind of following along with some of the things that he was doing. He sells his prints, and so periodically I'll check them out you know, and, and maybe, maybe try to pick one up or, or something like that. Anyway, that's beyond the point. Um, I came across one particular print that reminded me of what we see here as we consider the the providential hand of the Lord moving and working in this situation that from an outsider's perspective, as we look in, we go, man, this is nothing but evil. Let's show this picture. I'm going to explain to you a few of the elements because it's, it's kind of small. I made it as big as I, as I could for you to see. But it, the, the, the piece is entitled Beyond the Storm. And what we find is, is of course, like these, these two arms, right, <coughs> that, are, that are crossed, Alpha and, and Omega. It's this beautiful picture of, of, of God's um, providential hands, right, and his, his moving and, and working. And, and what you find here, like within one hand, is uh, these, these waters, like these uh, like ocean waters. And, and in the water is a boat, <laughs> And above the boat is obviously like this, this cloud that's it's just raining. It's hammering rain down upon the boat and there's, and there's lightning. It's this great storm that's, that's, being, uh, that's being, being, being raging, right, in the hands of, of the Lord, right? And, and the title, did I tell you the title, Beyond the Storm? Did I tell you that's what it's called? Okay, that's what it's called. So what are we, what are we being drawn into? Like as I was thinking it through Genesis 37, and I'm looking at this and you're looking at it now. Why? What's the purpose? What's the point? I mean, we see this beautiful picture of a raging storm, yet there is this security within the hand, right? And, and even, even over the top, there's this, there's this element of protection, right? Over the top, even amidst the storm. 
Right? There's, there's security and there is, and there is protection. Are things comfortable? Unlikely. <laughs> right? Are things, are things totally and completely enjoyable? Unlikely. Like, I mean, it's, it's a really simple picture, but you would imagine that that's a quite chaotic scene there within the hand, right? And as I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking about what we see in Genesis chapter 37, I'm thinking about, man, what a beautiful correlation. What a beautiful picture of what we see taking place here. There's this storm that's just raging around Joseph. Things are happening quick. Right? His brothers conspire against him. He's tossed into a pit. Perhaps he thinks he might die. And then he's pulled out and sold into slavery. He's on his way down to Egypt. 17 years old. What does that say about God? Has God lost control? Is God absent? No, he's not. In fact, we, we find this, this beautiful layer of protection. Storm is, is raging, but it's all right there within God's, God's control. He's, he's moving and he's, he's, he's working. God preserves Joseph's life as the scene now shifts toward Egypt, but not before his family is left to process what has happened. Look with me at verse 29. We're beginning to wrap things up at this point. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that his brother Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and, and they slaughtered a goat. They dripped it, the robe in, in the blood, verse 32. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to Pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Verse 35, and his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Scene shift, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Through this story, in its entirety, God answers the question, where is God while evil remains? Where is God? Is he, is he asleep? Is he distracted? Is he absent? And the life of Joseph is a reminder for God's people that no matter how dark or difficult the circumstance, God is in control. We are reminded that, that what man intended for evil, God intended for good. And he, and he works through it. And he works in it to accomplish a very specific Purpose and that purpose is to save. 
let's not be confused. Okay, this is a, a story that is totally about Joseph, and this is a story that is totally not about Joseph. Okay? Both of those things are, are happening here. As we will see, Joseph serving as a shadow of Jesus. In the life of Joseph here and in the life of Jesus later, we see brothers conspiring for evil. We see this becoming a a slave. We see two men sold for silver, suffering in silence, agents for the salvation of their people. Only in Jesus... We see the greater Joseph. Right? In, in Jesus, we see the better brother who seeks after the rebellious in a similar way as we observe from Joseph, only his life is not spared. Look back with me at verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, that is their plan to, to kill their brother, He rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Jesus is the better brother who is able to follow through on his plan to save. Jesus, who suffers humiliation at the hands of both his friends as well as the Romans. He died and he he rose again to save sinners. Joseph saved his people from starvation. That's where the story is going. But in Jesus, we find a better brother who saves his people from separation and eternal death in order to... Consider what we observe in verse 21 and 22. Restore us to the Father. Reuben's attempts fall short. Jesus's, man, they do not. Reuben desires to see his brother restored to his father, but he's he's unable, he's incapable. Jesus restores us into perfect fellowship and perfect friendship with our Heavenly Father. A Father who leverages the most evil intentions of men, the murder of the Messiah to fulfill his plan. In Genesis 37, we find a wandering Joseph sent to his brothers who conspire to take his life. In God's word, wanderers are pointed toward the only one who can give us life. As Moses records these events for his people moving forward, the encouragement would be to trust in God to bring about his plan, even in the face of the sinful actions of some. God's people reading this would be encouraged as they survey the landscape. We talked about in the beginning how there are elements of this this plan that are being realized, and yet there is no nation that has been developed. Because of what God is accomplishing by way of this scene, 
laid out before the foundation of the world, we would see a greater fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to bring about a nation that would bless. A nation that is developed, born in the fire, among, among hardship and, and, and difficulty, surviving as a result of God's work here in Genesis 37. It's how God's people reading this would have been encouraged to respond. But how do we respond? Or what do we do? What do we, what do we think in light of what we see here? I mean, we sit here this morning considering the landscape of a global culture of physical violence and oppression of God's people tempted to ask God, where are you? Are you here? Are you asleep? Are you absent? Only to be reminded. Through Genesis 37, that God's work will not be discouraged and it will not be derailed. But even even through and perhaps even especially in difficulty, it will progress. What's our, what's our thesis? What's our big idea? Let's bring it back. I mean, God preserves Joseph's life in spite of his brother's evil actions, positioning him to fulfill his purpose in God's plan to rescue a people. We get a glimpse of this by way of the dreams that lead or serve as a catalyst to everything that we observe taking place here. As Joseph would receive power, no matter how dark the circumstances, hear this. We need to hear this. <laughs> we need to hear this. No matter how dark the circumstances, God is accomplishing his mission to save. No matter how dark the circumstances, God is accomplishing his mission to save. We sang it this morning and it made me want to cry as we did. Right? It is, it is finished. He has done it. Let your, your weary, scattered Questioning hearts rejoice. Go bravely into battle knowing he has won the war regardless of hardship, regardless of difficulty. Psalm 147 beginning in verse 15. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters heart frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. Job 37, beginning in verse 11, he loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them. On the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Man, what an incredible picture of God's divine work. A work that we continue to witness through the life of Joseph, a shadow of the life and work of our King, Jesus. Let's pray together. Father.